Do you remember the secret source of community renewables? It's bankability. This is what Germany introduced with the EEG, the German Renewable Energy Sources Act in the year 2000, which provided proper feed and tariffs for all renewables. These feed and tariffs got copied in some 100 jurisdictions worldwide. Has it helped foster community energy? Let's find out. This eighth episode of our Community Renewables podcast will look into the cases of other countries. Today we will talk about cases from Canada to Ireland and India. I'm your host, Rebecca Freitag, and next to me, with two meters of social distancing, is Craig Morris, our producer and energy chronicler. Hello, everyone. And once again, it's really hot in the studio, so we have the ceiling fans on. Yeah, we, we hope that any noise you're hearing bothers you less than it keeps us from dying here. <laughs> yeah, let's start this episode by asking one of the fathers of the EEG, Hans-Josef Fell, how he views other countries who adopted feed and tariffs based on the German model. You may remember our interview with him from episode 2. Hans-Josef Fell, you now do international work on feed-in tariffs. Um, how are things going? It was a great success story. It was or is? Yes, it was a great success story. The switch to renewables was dictated by Germany in some countries, and a lot of others then followed suit. But in India, the auctions are completely undersubscribed, and they are dominated by three foreign companies, no community energy, cooperatives, or anything similar. And the same thing is happening in other countries. So this switch to auctions that Germany wanted has had a devastating effect on climate change mitigation. A number of countries have launched auctions as the main policy tool for renewables, with feed and tariffs often, but not always, still offered for small projects. But Craig, what does he mean by Germany dictated the switch to auctions? I can't say that I understand that. Maybe he knows something I don't, but here's what I know. Back in 2013, the EU was looking into how Germany exempts energy-intensive industry from the cost of renewable electricity. But the German government kept talking about being forced by Brussels to switch to auctions, which is not the same thing. There was this weird communication. The German government was using pressure from the EU, so the EU was pressuring Germany to stop subsidizing its industry, And Berlin wanted to sell the switch from feed-in tariffs to auctions at home, so it talked about this pressure from the EU. Only two people understood and documented this confusion at the time, and it was me and Jakob Schlant. That's the journalist we talked to in episode 5. Right. All the other journalists merely reported what economics minister Gabriel uh, said at the time, We have to switch to auctions because the EU is breathing down our backs. But when the EU's competition commissioner, Joachim Almunia, heard of the reports from Germany, he said, no, we would prefer auctions, but we are investigating Germany's exemptions for energy-intensive industry. 
So the German government wanted to switch to auctions and exaggerated the pressure from the EU so they could push through the change at home? It seems so. More specifically, the German government seems to have tried to trade with the EU. Germany ended up keeping its exemptions for industry, but switched to auctions. Protecting big power consumers was more important for Berlin than community renewable projects were. It sounds like the German government was protecting big firms at both ends. The energy-intensive industry, the big power consumers, didn't have to pay the surcharge for renewable power. And auctions gave the power sector back to the big power producers. That at least was the effect. Well, today we will talk more about how the switch from feed-in towers to auctions has gone around the world. And we start with Stefan Xenger. Stefan has been active in the international renewable energy community for the past 20 years. He is Secretary General of the World Wind Energy Association and helped initiate the International Renewable Energy Alliance and the global Go 100% Renewables campaign. Not surprisingly in his efforts, he received the International Community Power Award. Enough experience to give us a good overview on how feed and tariffs and the switch to auctions developed internationally. Stefan uses the word undersubscribed to talk about auctions. Let me briefly explain what that means for our listeners who missed previous episodes. In auctions, governments set the maximum volume and project developers compete in a bidding process. The cheapest projects win. Usually you want more bids than is being auctioned and you take the cheapest ones. An auction is undersubscribed when the bids placed do not cover the volume of the auction. So for instance, 100 megawatts might be on auction, but only 80 megawatts is bid. This means that less gets built than is hoped for, which is not what we want in mitigating climate change. German onshore wind auctions have also been generally undersubscribed for the past two years. So it seems that undersubscription is a general risk in auctions. Now, here is Stefan Xenger. So Stefan, um, how are auctions going for wind power worldwide? You know, we have we have just problems. I mean, you see that this, this the system is very closely related to the structure of investors you have in Brazil. Really, you have only with the big ones, the international big ones. You will know almost all of them. If you look at who won mm. their, the bids in Australian uh, in, in Brazilian auctions, you'll know most of those companies. Mm. When you look at India, they just made at a similar time like Germany, they made the switch to auctions. Mm -hmm. If you look at the, the uh, investors that started in two, three years ago, 10 years ago, you wouldn't know any of them mm -hmm. because it's like Germany. It's not community energy, but many of these Small, SMEs. mid-sized companies, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or yeah. you have typically um, uh, cotton mills or, or, or okay. textile companies. Oh, yeah. they, they, they follow a bit the Susulon example. Mm -hmm. uh, but now the last auction round in wind in, in, in India, it was totally undersubscribed and there was just Adani and Enel. Right. So the si situation is very similar. Really, that's this kind of concentration that I see, that I see as so risky, also in a country like India. Mm -hmm. So then we come to the point that they say, why should we pay for the profit of 
international investors, no? where you don't know where the money goes to. Right, and yeah. We had this, this discussion in, in Pakistan. No? We were very active. And then some started arguing in that way to the government. I hope that the government is listening a bit. They said, see, we did the same mistake with our mobile phone uh, system. So we were very happy when we had an international investor who came and invested. But now all the profit they make, and they make a lot of profit, mm -hmm. goes somewhere. Mm -hmm. yep. And energy is a much bigger business than mobile phones. Stefan talks about learning from other policy fields with similar investor structures. And Toby Couture does that too in episode two. And I like what he said about market concentration being risky. We had that debate in episode four as well. Community energy is one way to lower the risk. And the, the interesting thing about India is that the country had a domestic content clause in its feed-in tariffs. Uh, A number of countries did this. To qualify for feed-in tariffs, you had to ensure that a certain percentage, like 50 or 60 percent, of the goods and services in the project came from within the country. So the focus on where the profits go, it's not just an issue with community projects. It's actually there all the time, even with the big stuff. And our next guest comes from another jurisdiction that had a domestic content clause in its feed-in tariffs. This time, it's not a country, but the Canadian province of Ontario, which adopted its Green Energy Act in 2009. It led to a boom in solar and wind, but it sounds like the boom is over. Indeed. Um, our next guest is Jose Echeverry. He's a professor of sustainable energy at the University of York in Toronto. He advised the provincial government in 2008 when it was designing the Green Energy Act. And he got the new energy minister to go on a fact-finding mission to Spain, Denmark, and Germany in 2008, specifically to see how community renewables worked. By 2016, Ontario accounted for 40% of Canada's wind power, and 98% of its solar capacity was in Ontario. But these projects didn't only stem from German and Danish-style grassroots movements. It was largely big foreign firms that built projects. And resistance against wind power in particular was fierce in the rural population. So, Craig, before we talk with Jose Echeverry about how that momentum is going, I wanted to clear up two terms he uses. First, Canada launched a carbon pricing market in 2019. The initial price was 20 Canadian dollars per ton of CO2, rising by $10 annually. The second term is net metering. Yeah, that's basically when you generate renewable electricity on your own property, like solar on your roof, and your power meter runs backwards when you produce more than you consume. So you offset your retail rate. And the question is then how you get paid for any negative balance at the end of the month. So if you generate more solar power than you consume electricity overall, a lot of utilities don't want to pay you the full rate then. Sounds like a policy that doesn't provide investment security. You don't know exactly how much you will be paid. And it might also disincentivize energy conservation since lower power consumption might also mean less return on your solar power. 
And it also leads to smaller roof arrays. You might be able to fit 30 solar panels on your building, but maybe you would only make money off of 14, which is how many you would need to match your own power consumption. Also, not good for climate change mitigation. Well, we've talked enough. Here's Craig with Jose Echeverry. Let's go back to the beginning, 2009, actually 2008, you visited, uh, I believe it was Germany, Denmark, and Spain on a fact-finding mission with then-Energy Minister Smitherman, right? And I think Ontario was, at the time, one of the biggest places where the German Renewable Energy Act had been, I'm going to say copied, right, or, or emulated in some way. But it was one of the biggest examples of that. And so this law is passed, the Green Energy and Green Economy Act in 2009. How did that go? Um, well, it went bad and, and well. It went well in the sense that the trip to the fact-finding trip was a success. Um, it did open the eyes of the minister at the time, Minister Smitherman. It went bad in the sense that uh, by 2009, that was the beginning of the end for renewables. One of the aspects of the feeding tariff program was to not have a market cap on the response of renewable energy. The Ontario nuclear industry realized that if they didn't take decisive action uh, to stop the Green Energy Act, the feeding tariff programs, and the politicians that were advancing them, they would have followed the path of, of the coal power generators, which were beginning to be obliterated at that point mm -hmm. uh, and ceased to exist on 2014. So the nuclear industry in Ontario uh, realized the Green Energy Act is the beginning of the end to our industry, mm -hmm. and they quickly sprang into action to create the lobby groups necessary to, uh, in essence, destroy everything that we created up to that point in 2009. So, so that's why I say it was the beginning of the end, right? Now, w one thing that I've read a lot about is that they, there were expedited planning procedures for wind power in particular, and that uh, that sort of met with resistance in the rural population as well. Was a mistake made there? Of course a mistake was made. Rural people intrinsically had nothing against renewable energy, but it was the nuclear lobby that created uh, the seeds of discontent amongst rural people to begin to question the health uh, implications of developing renewable energy uh, by, by starting a campaign uh, to create fear that wind turbines could create something called wind turbine syndrome, mm. which uh, has been widely discredited by health professionals at this point, mm. but the damage is already done. That did not come out of thin air. It came out of the boardrooms of the nuclear guys okay. that decided to take steps to finance a disinformation campaign in Ontario, mm. which uh, has worldwide implications. I think okay. Ontario is... Uh, a theater of war for the nuclear industry um, because, and I use that word because it's a very accurate one. I mean, they see that decisions that are made in Ontario uh, will affect the path of nuclear power development worldwide. I think for, you know, if you go back to those days 12 years ago, 
I think we believed, I certainly believed that we could copy the German Renewable Energy Act elsewhere and it would bring about, as a pull mechanism, it would bring about community energy, the grassroots movement. And I think what I realized um, afterwards was that it was the other way around. The grassroots movement in Germany brought about the law and the way this matters is that this law is can be implemented somewhere else, like in Ontario. And if there's not a groundswell of people on the ground, you know, community energy groups, you know, waiting at the starting line to, to start running with it, then the people who monitor energy policy, so sort of existing energy companies, they will move faster and, and fill in the market and the community energy groups who take a bit longer to do things and get started and, you know, even catch wind of the new policy options, uh, by the time they decide to start moving in, the market has already kind of um, overcharged, you know, because you were talking about all of there was no cap on developments and all this went so quickly. So am I getting that right? Um, is the EEG model, the feed-in tariff model, is it kind of fundamentally unable to push a grassroots movement? Um, are we pushing on a string that, that you can only pull with? Your hypothesis is correct. I think what we now need to accept is that copy and paste does not work. It has to take into uh, consideration the cultural context of a place. Uh, which in Germany was built by decades of activism. They became professional engineers, professors, farm owners, etc., with a belief system mm -hmm. on the solutions. So what? how do you implement uh, or how do you promote renewables specifically on, in Ontario in 2020? What we're proposing to do is to harness the existing federal Canadian carbon market mm -hmm. to be able to develop renewable energy specifically at the university where I work mm -hmm. so we can create new research opportunities, new experiential learning opportunities. So in essence, we can raise a new generation of project developers and policy makers. We are now taking an approach of getting it right at the source. The plan is to harness the carbon federal market to develop renewable energy in the university to create a living laboratory where all what, the what students... Do you, what do you mean by uh, in within the university? You mean actually uh, uh, renewable energy generation within the university? Correct, okay. correct. So we've taken the first steps, which is to create the labs, the solar labs where we can learn by doing, mm -hmm. uh, where we can gather the empirical data of generation, installations, mm -hmm. costs, etc. And now we plan to go mainstream. And that is the new way to go okay. here. And in a way, we're also emulating the German approach. So you're, you're basically uh, trying to teach your students to implement things and then hoping that they will go out and actually do this in the world three, four, five, ten years down the road. So it's even more radical than that. We're teaching ourselves how to do it properly. The fact is that universities, just like the rest of society, have a lack of qualified personnel that can do renewable energy, electric mobility, and the other sustainability options that are essential mm -hmm. 
to solve the climate crisis. Universities are cities where we can very quickly uh, implement the best solutions to climate change and teach ourselves how to do that so we mm -hmm. can quickly change the innovation ecosystem, the living ecosystem mm -hmm. inside of the university. Okay. So, so people can learn by doing. Are citizens of Ontario able to put solar on their roofs and connect it to the grid and, and sell power back to the grid? Uh, yes and no. Yes, we do still have net metering, a version of net metering that is not very generous. Mm -hmm. But it, technically speaking, if you wish to do it, you can do it. Mm -hmm. The problem is that financially speaking, it's not possible because... Uh, you just get you the know, rate that you would have paid otherwise. Exactly. So you still would require a grant uh, to be able to improve the return on mm. investment. Um, and that's where the carbon market enters okay. the equation. It is possible now for universities to access, access federal carbon money, mm -hmm. which would allow us to use that money as grants to ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we can create renewable energy service companies inside of the university so we can develop uh, every roof, every parking lot, okay. like universities of California. But, but homeowners doing. are not able to access this carbon revenue? Not directly. Okay. Like They can get a rebate on their income tax, uh -huh. but, but it's a petite contribution. I mean, it would be only a few hundred dollars per family, which is not, a session, not enough. Are there community wind uh, projects that are not not the historic ones there were a few of those but is community wind alive in ontario today no there is no business case what you're essentially describing to me if i understand correctly is you 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 are trying to leverage the carbon market which requires larger entities like a university this this you know uh, households only have indirect access uh, to this funding um, so you could kind of keep renewables going in Ontario, but to a large extent, community energy is not going anywhere in Ontario, and there is no real proposal on the table that would fix that. Correct. Alberta uh, had a little bit of a market uptick, which now has also been destroyed because they have a very similar right-wing government like the one Ontario has. Mm -hmm. uh, Saskatchewan, um, it's also a little active. And the reason why those two jurisdictions are active is because there is a federal effort to phase out coal power generation. Mm, right everywhere in Canada, right. which has created a little bit of a market opportunity to the provinces that still have coal, mm -hmm. Alberta, Saskatchewan. Uh, Ontario no longer has coal, so at least that's the only good news part of the equation. We need to learn from the errors that were, were made here in Ontario. Uh, number one, uh, we underestimated the power of the nuclear lobby in Ontario and of the oil and gas industry in Canada. Mm -hmm. Number two, it's incredibly important to take uh, action to harness investments so we can have capacity development at the local level so a new generation of doers can be raised uh, in a prosperous manner. If we continue to expect people to work on the margins of society, their gains will only be marginal. And the third aspect of all of this is that 
to ensure that renewable energy can continue to grow exponentially in the 2020 to 2025 framework. What needs to happen is we need to learn what went wrong to get policies right, harness the carbon market, uh, at least here in Canada it exists, to do uh, community projects that have paradigm shifting potential. Um, and that means uh, harnessing the power of communications. Uh, that was something we did not pay attention to. So, Craig, I feel kind of sad after this interview. Yeah, me too. He's basically limited to his university, which is very small in terms of what the whole province can do. We've really lost the battle in Ontario for the meantime. Yeah, I'm disappointed to see renewables in exile. As much as I appreciate his capacity-building efforts, we simply cannot wait until a new generation is in power. And Jose puts the blame on nuclear and fossil, which Dirk van Sintian and Hans-Josef Fell also complained about. But mistakes were also made in Ontario, too. Permitting for onshore wind farms led to a backlash. Communities felt like they had no way of stopping big wind farms that international developers were working on. Craig talks about that in an interview he gave on Canadian TV in 2016 about this issue. He had just published his book Energy Democracy and was on a news talk show called The Agenda with Steve Pakin. Steve was telling Craig about the resistance to wind farms in Ontario. Here's an excerpt. What, what a lot of us thought was if we just take the German law and pass it everywhere, we will have community energy and people will love it and they'll build all this stuff themselves. And what we see from Ontario to Spain to Italy and other places is uh, it's, it was the other way around. The Germans asked for this and got the law and then ran with it. But simply putting the law somewhere wasn't enough. The people of Ontario were not waiting for this to happen. And so it's taken a while for them to pick up the baton. And what we need to do in, th in this province then is communicate to everyone that you have the right to say no to a wind turbine if you want, but then let's talk about what you want instead. Well, you don't, though. That's the thing. That, exactly. In, in the province of Ontario, you don't have that right. Municipalities do not have a veto. They have the right to consultation, but they don't have a right to veto if the province wants to put a wind turbine in their backyard. And this is unacceptable. And that's what I'm saying. We have to give people actual rights, and that's why our book's called Energy Democracy. And again, I'm not saying uh, just that people need to be able to build this. I think people should be able to say no. And the reason I believe this is that based on the German experience, just starting to have this discussion, you know, you might get 80% of communities on, in Ontario saying no to wind turbines, but then you'll get 20% saying yes. And five years later, we're going to review this, and all of those communities that said no are going to look at the 20 that said yes, the 20% that's, that actually built something, and they're going to say, you know what? They're making good money. The jobs are happening locally. Um, their communities are stronger. And all those concerns that we had about you can see the things and, I don't know, they're loud or whatever, um, that's not really happening. i got to tell you, the Green Energy Act is box office poison in this province right now. What do you do about it? I mean, this is one of the difficulties in your efforts to sort of convince people to yeah. make this kind of transition, is that there, there's a great deal of opposition and antipathy to this approach right now. 
Yeah, and, and I would just say we need to engage more with the public and we need to communicate to them that this is an opportunity, but that if they want, it's not enough for them just to say yes and then the utility comes in and builds. What we really want is for them to run with this themselves. They should be the drivers and they should decide uh, that we want maybe three turbines here and not 50 over here, but you will eventually get a momentum, you know, after everyone is happy with the three turbines. And then the farmers come in and say, you know what, we've got a lot of bio waste. You could be making biogas and, and then you have heat and electricity that's renewable. We're using, we're recovering waste for that. To use the waste, we need to build district heat networks. This is going to really bring the community together and you'll start a discussion about energy and that will have its own momentum. And then I think people are going to make the right decisions. But Craig, it sounds like that momentum hasn't materialized. No, I was wrong about that, at least up to now. So big companies were able to move faster. In comparison to citizen projects, they were more organized and professional because it's not based on voluntary work. Yeah, and there's, there's one other thing we need to understand. Big power firms use renewables to enter new markets. For instance, do you know who one of the biggest developers in Ontario was under the Green Energy Act? Tell me. Samsung Renewable Energy. Samsung? The Korean electronics manufacturer? Yeah. And now imagine the reaction in rural Ontario when it turns out that the firm developing a giant wind farm in your area is from far, far away even with the domestic content clause. And Samsung doesn't even have a bad reputation. Who doesn't love their cell phones, laptops, screens? I certainly do, and I'm also a big fan of Korea. Lots of people are. So it's not just that foreign firms are seen as bad guys. It's the simple fact that profits made off the community will leave the community. And there's a really pernicious aspect with renewables that too few people understand. There's a natural market tendency for firms to build renewables outside their home territory so that they mess with someone else's assets, not their own. So power providers invest in wind and solar abroad because building this stuff at home would hurt their stranded fossil and nuclear assets. And we see this with so many companies. A few years ago, I wrote about Florida Power and Light and its parent company, NextEra Energy. It has advertised itself at various times as the biggest developer of solar and wind in the United States. But it had built almost nothing in Florida at the time I wrote that article. In fact, in the Sunshine State, Florida Power and Light opposed residential solar just a few years ago. We will put a link in the show notes to that article. And you can read up on this with a lot of big power firms. Take a look at France's EDF, look at their annual report to see how much renewables they develop outside France as opposed to within France. Take a look at big German power firms. It's a similar story everywhere. These firms have fossil and nuclear assets at home, and more renewables at home would hurt them financially. So they prefer to develop wind and solar abroad. And this market logic makes communities feel like they are being invaded by foreign firms whom they cannot stop. Sometimes, yes. For me, 
the main takeaway from Ontario is that we thought 10 years ago that German feed-in tariffs could be copied and would lead to community renewables everywhere. So we thought that feed-in tariffs would pull community projects along. But it turns out that the German community groups brought about the feed-in tariffs, not the other way around. So feed-in tariffs are like a string. They can only pull people willing to move. You can't push on a string. Jose also said we need to raise a new generation of doers in a prosperous manner. We cannot expect people to continue working on the marginal level. It's interesting to see that other countries also face the generation problem, the question of who comes next and also the question of proper payment. So again, we need to professionalize. And finally, Jose said, community projects are a paradigm shift in potential. We forget in this whole debate that this is not just a switch of technology, but a societal shift where citizens get more control and become involved in the energy sector. You may remember our guest who said the secret source for more renewables is bankability. It's Toby Couture, a Canadian but Berlin-based energy advisor. He was in episode two. We will now take a deep dive with him into his international energy policy work. A lot of the work that you do, if I understand correctly, is in Africa and I think Asia. And, and you're still helping you know, energy ministries design FITs. Is that correct? That is correct. There still are governments out there. Um, implementing new feed-in tariffs. I've been working recently with the governments in Vietnam. There's a very real and high-level conversation happening in Vietnam now around stranded assets. What mm -hmm. to do with existing coal infrastructure that potentially will need to be phased out prematurely. Scaling up renewables like wind and solar is a major part of it. And in order to do that, they're combining a number of different instruments, of which feed-in tariffs are one. So there's an ongoing discussion now about moving to auctions for certain mechanisms, okay. much, as we've, much as we've seen here in, in Europe, but potentially reserving feed-in tariffs for small and medium-sized projects. Is this just seen in these countries as a mechanism to ramp up renewables, or, or is there that community aspect and, and aspiration as well? I think in some countries there's definitely a clear sense that the more local investment there is the more local companies can get in on the action the better and mm. that includes on the investment side so not just installers and even manufacturing in some cases but also as investors uh, i'll take senegal for example which has recently mm. introduced a net fit essentially a feed-in tariff but only for the surplus generation so you can self-consume and mm. offset your retail rate that you would otherwise be buying from the utility Okay. And then for all of the surplus, you inject it into the grid and get paid a specific rate. There were a couple of cities in the states, uh, municip municipalities that adopted feed-in tariffs, but uh, it, it didn't really take off. And I think it's just completely off the radar at the moment in the United States. Is that your feeling as well? 
And there still are some feed and tariff-like uh, policies across the U.S. in different pockets. Um, and in fact, the first feed and tariff in the world is still alive and, uh, if not well, alive and kicking uh, in the form of <laughs> PERPA. But you do understand what I'm trying to get at. I mean, if FITs did not become the driving force in the United States. And I just wonder if you have any sense for why that is. I don't think there's an easy answer to, to that question. I think the problem was that when they were in their heyday in Europe, renewables, particularly solar and wind, were still considerably, well, I guess solar even more in particular, uh, were significantly more expensive than other generation technologies. Mm -hmm. And the utility regulatory apparatus in the U.S., the regulators thinking is fundamentally driven by reliability on the one hand, but also by concerns over costs. There's a, in a way a baked in resistance to things that are going to push up rates. Well, yeah. what do you think about my brief ex bumper sticker explanation, which is that the U S mindset, and I would say the, maybe the Anglo neoliberal mindset is more averse to governmental price setting. I think that's definitely a part of it, but it's not just that. There are lots of nuclear contracts, for example, that benefited from above market price, long-term power purchase agreements that were pushed through regulatory commissions. And those were effectively negotiated pricing. In fact, there's an entire, there are entire regulatory proceedings to, mm. devoted to the process of setting bilateral rates. Right. The difference with feed-in tariffs is that it's not a bilateral dynamic. It's one that applies to all producers. So I do think that these these cultural, just the culture of utility regulatory making in the U.S. was from the beginning in some ways institutionally hostile to um, notions like feed-in tariffs. And I'll, I'll share with you an example of this. Okay. Uh, I was invited to come to California, flew into Sacramento and was in front of a panel of, of distinguished CPUC commissioners, that's the California Public Utilities Commission, presenting on feed-in tariffs mm -hmm. and auctions. The, after a half-hour presentation, the commissioners, one or two of them in particular, launched into it. And it was clear from the get-go that they were very hostile to this idea and didn't want it anywhere near uh, their state. They launched into the debate saying, so what you're proposing is a tax on all California ratepayers to subsidize these privileged renewable energy projects. Why should we do that? And ultimately, you could get into a debate and say, well, there are all kinds of reasons. But again, the, the hostility to increasing rates intentionally in order to scale renewables was uh, clear from the start. So in that regard, I do think that ideology played a big role and indeed in many ways continues to play a big role. Mm -hmm. um, and you can see this in the European Commission today, and you can see it certainly in many uh, state regulatory commissions across the U.S. Markets should set prices, not governments. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately what the hostility to feed-in tariffs boils down to. Never mind that Germany continues to set the allowable prices in hundreds of different sectors from pharmaceuticals, tax advisors, accountants, dentists, architects, fees, even chimney sweepers. Mm -hmm. uh, the rates are essentially set in 
honoraria and nobody really um considers this to be considers this to be subsidy yeah or a subsidy yeah yeah so why is it that in the energy market um we've seen policies like feed-in tariff that are essentially tantamount to the same thing you can build a thousand megawatts of generation capacity by signing a bilateral contract behind closed doors with one particular uh, proponent or company, likely one from outside of your country, Mm. or you can develop a thousand megawatts of domestic renewable energy capacity, a significant share of which is owned and invested in by your own citizens and businesses. So one of the things that worries me as I look across the landscape, not only in Europe, but but beyond, is that what we've seen in many jurisdictions is the removal of policy and regulatory certainty for renewable energy projects. And not only that, we've seen it combined with a tightening of the rules around who can actually participate. Mm-hmm. And fundamentally, that's not sustainable. Not only do we need more low carbon investment, we need more investment in renewable technologies. We also need that investment to be open to more people. So those combined trends, on the one hand, increasing the uncertainty of the investment environment, Mm. combined with this tightening of the rules around who can actually participate. And I think those are two very negative trends for the energy transition. And if we're moving to a world with more and more distributed technologies, not only on the generation side, but also electric vehicles, also storage technologies, demand response technologies, um, smart charging and smart homes, smart appliances. We are going to need much higher levels of participation and engagement from citizens and businesses than has been the case in the past. It's not about feed-in tariffs. We need to look at what it is that made feed-in tariffs work. And what it is that made them work is, on the one hand, as we discussed, they were open. They mm-hmm. enabled many different people, many different, you know, anybody essentially to participate. And they provided investment certainty. They mm-hmm. created an environment that was bankable. One of the reasons that even electric utilities themselves became uh, attractive low-risk investments for pension funds across North America and Europe over the course of the 20th century came down fundamentally to the fact that they had and benefited from rate of return regulation. Utilities were basically allowed to recover whatever costs they might incur in the course of business from ratepayers, and that gave them essentially a license to print money and investors loved every minute of it. And in a way, feed-in tariffs tried to accomplish the same thing for not utilities as a whole, but for individual renewable energy projects. Yeah, but, but you realize that you've also just given the other side ammunition. You say that feed-in tariffs merely tried to give um, you know, renewables the same level playing field under the same terms that utilities used to have regulated utilities but we don't have regulated utilities anymore and i think if you talk to dg competition they are going to say we want renewables to compete and win you know on price on the market under competition terms so maybe that actually is the problem with liberalization the market in many ways has moved on 
and mm-hmm. reintroducing minimum pricing is a non-starter. The discussion needs to start from a different place. It needs to look at what is it that made feed-in tariffs work. Mm-hmm. So I think the idea of returning to um, the, the good old days of long-term contracts and guaranteed remuneration, at least in Europe, are, are probably past. One of the things that worries me about the consensus and the sort of shift in recent years is that a lot of it's driven by economics and economists who, who frankly haven't studied enough finance. What is the difference for our listeners and for me uh, between economics and finance? Economists get caught up in notions of efficiency mm-hmm. and what is efficient for the market where financiers or investors are fundamentally interested in, is this investable? Uh, Ultimately, it's finance that drives the world, not economics. And (laughs) liberalization made feed-in tariffs possible. In other words, if the market hadn't been opened up at all, we would have never seen feed-in tariffs. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's, it's both the necessary precondition and the dem- and sets the stage for the demise of. I think mm-hmm. that's the key point in a way, mm-hmm. because as you move forward with liberalization, that means more and more competition mm-hmm. for pricing, and that means everybody has to compete over pricing. The arc we followed, in a way, has been one from. It's really important to capture that historical arc. Okay, from monopoly to opening up to more independent power producers to more renewables, and I think we're now at a point in time where it's either going to continue opening up or start to tighten and close again and and be more restricted and i think mm-hmm. that's in a way as i see it that's one of the one of the uh, inflection points that we're at technology is increasingly decentralized is increasingly enabling levels of interactivity and participation that were unthinkable in the, right. in the 20th century let alone in the 2000s and all of the technological forces, all the technological momentum is fundamentally in favor of more consumer and community and individual interactivity. If you look at South Africa, if you look at even China, a lot of the ownership is increasing. I mean, yes, state plays a big role, but even in markets with very strong status traditions, uh, the trend is still towards more decentralized ownership. uses the term stranded assets and that's what Jose was talking about where the pushback comes from yeah and he also doesn't seem to support the freedom to contract that we discussed in episode five he prefers investment planability but what I really liked was his argument that we can't transition without much deeper public participation so we need buy-in as I like to say Community energy can't do everything, but without community energy, we can't do anything. So we hear a lot that feed and tariffs were good in the beginning, but now we need other policies. I think you two put your finger on the reason here. Feed and tariffs offered renewables conditions similar to those that regulated utilities had. But those days are over in the EU. So Power providers no longer have prices agreed with some public commission. So why should renewables have that? 
Well, because solar and wind react to the weather, not to power prices. And wind and solar have high upfront costs. So we have a good idea what the power will cost on day one. Again, the difference between feed-in tariffs and auctions here can be overstated. At least in Germany, a sort of grid regulator, the German network agency, sets the maximum bidding price in auctions, and those prices are also for 20 years. Toby's definition of a sustainable energy market was also interesting. It's investment certainties and a diverse participation of actors. And both of these factors are shrinking today. He also compares price setting and feed-in tariffs to other market segments, where rates are also fixed, but we don't complain. But for renewables, we do. But can we really compare, I don't know, wind power with dentists? Well, just to be clear, people often say you can't compare those things when they mean these two things are not alike. But you certainly can compare things that are different, and the comparison highlights the differences and similarities. So let's start with dentists and wind power. What's the difference? Well, I have to pay for your wind power, but I don't have to pay for your dentist. You certainly do. Not for any cosmetic surgery, but in countries with uh, state health care, you generally co-pay for all medical services that other people have, at least those covered by the health system. With chimney sweeps, you might not care what your neighbors pay to get their fireplaces cleaned, but if they don't do it because it's too expensive and their home catches on fire and then yours burns down too, well, you might want chimney sweeps to be regulated more. And I would also add taxi drivers. In lots of EU countries, Uber, the, the ride-hailing service, is basically banned. That's because, at least in Germany, Taxi companies are heavily regulated. Their charges are fixed, and they cannot refuse service for short trips. In return, they are protected from being undercut by new services, like Uber. So we pay doctors, taxi drivers, and chimney sweeps enough for them to make a profit, but we also prevent them from gouging customers, and I'm putting customers in air quotes there, and I'm doing that because these people are not really just customers. These goods and services are not just commodities. Germany considers taxis to be part of their public transportation. Taxis fill the gap between trains, trams, and buses. So we don't want the market to take care of things ranging from health care to taxis because we have reached a consensus that the outcome would be worse for citizens not just consumers, but also workers. This is what Martin Walsing was talking about in episode 6. Right. We have to understand what markets do well and don't do well. Markets serve well the wishes of those with spending power. They don't serve well the needs of everyone regardless of spending power. So what we need to decide is where renewable energy and where community renewables and where climate change mitigation exist on this spectrum between, on the one end, the wishes of those with money, and on the other end, the needs of everyone. Our next guest was also on episode two, and it's David Jacobs. 
Like Toby Couture, he is an international policy advisor who has lots of experience with feed and tariffs worldwide. As he puts it in his interview, feed and tariffs and designing them is no longer a mystery. And he also agrees that the energy transition is not possible without engagement from communities. Let's hear why. Here's David Jacobs. So you are actually a policy advisor, uh, I don't know, in, in five or ten countries you've uh, sort of um, provided some input into feed-in tariff policy design there. And I kind of mm. have two questions about that. Um, one of them is, what do you propose? And the other is, why are they interested specifically in feed-in tariffs? I'm sorry, that's kind of unfair to pose two questions at once. Let's take the first <laughs> one. What, what, are you, what do you propose when you talk to them? Well, the, the best practice feed-in tariff design is no longer a mystery. So um, a bunch of researchers, um, including myself when I was writing my PhD, were elaborating quite heavily on this in 2005, 2006, until 2010. And then there were a number of guidebooks from UNEP, but also from ANRIL and some other papers, which gave you a very good idea about the the design options you needed to include in a in a well working feed in tariff. So this is no longer no longer really the challenge. The challenge really still is um, getting the price right. And I was mm. I wasn't aware of how difficult this is before I've done it myself for the first time. <laughs> okay, which is probably why the parliaments don't want to. You know, they I mean, parliamentarians have so many other things to take care of, right? Yeah, and even if you don't have it uh, done by the par parliament as it, as it was done in Germany, and Germany was an exceptional case, I mm -hmm. think Germany was the only country in the world where the parliament was really deciding on the rates. Mm -hmm. In all other countries, it was done by a ministerial order, so there were just some folks behind closed doors. Specializing in, in that, yeah. Exactly, yeah, and that's also the approach we took, for instance, when I helped um, Ghana calculate their first feed and tariffs also. Mm -hmm. Malaysia, mm -hmm. but still, it's it's so difficult, especially in in less mature markets where you only have a few pilot projects which have taken place so far, and then you go into the country and you're trying to set up a feed-in tariff. Your margin of error is quite big. It's it's actually much easier in Germany because you you already have five million total yeah, projects. experience, yeah. And experience, so it's much easier for you to get an idea of where the market is, what is the, what is the typical cost of capital that you can mm -hmm. assume, what are the module costs, and mm -hmm. so on and so on. But in a in a less mature market like Ghana, back in 2012, there was like half a project that was realized, and five <laughs> of them were in planning. Yeah. And so you had um, project developers telling you anything between a feed-in tariff of 30 cents per kilowatt hour all the way down to 10 cents per kilowatt hour. Mm. And then you had to look at neighboring countries and international trends, but still it was a lot of guessing. And that was actually the same in Germany in 2000. Right. I, was, right. I was actually interviewing some people in the, in the German parliament who were involved in, in, in writing the law and who were also um, then setting up the tariffs. <laughs> and they were telling me some, some funny anecdotes where they just had to call people as well from, from the Geothermal Association um, asking them, hey, what, what does your do stuff you? cost? Yeah, what, what does it cost? And, there was a, and they were saying, oh, I, we think it's like, we would be fine with like 15 cents per kilowatt hour. And then they uh, put down the phone and then they were talking internally and saying, these guys are always really modest. They say 15, let's give them 20. 
Oh, oh, really? So, so I, I would have thought it was the other way around. That the, the, the... it was the other way around in many cases. Okay, but, yeah, um, well, yeah. Geothermal Well, was kind of a difficult story. Well, so, uh, let's it, not it is, let's not bad talk geothermal here. Yeah, time. yeah, you know, no yeah. bad talking geothermal. Um, so, so let's just stick with Ghana for a second. Why? Yeah. why I mean, to come back to my second question, um, why would Ghana be interested in feed-in tariffs when, I guess, auctions would take care of the whole problem? Just ask the market, right? Oh, and that's exactly what it is. I mean, there was a strong interest in having feed-in tariffs developed in the years 2010 to 2016. Mm -hmm. And I was um, living in Accra, I think, in 2011 and 2012, because at that time, um, for policymakers worldwide, it was like, okay, I want to push forward renewables. I need to get a feed-in tariff. That was uh, the simple story um, Mm -hmm. that you had communicated internationally. Nowadays, the story is much different. Nowadays, the story is, okay, I want to get cheap renewals. I need to get an auction, and then I get prices as low as Saudi Arabia, which is an equally simplistic, oversimplistic Not going to happen. Um, yeah. Story, it's not going to happen, but this is the expectation from okay. a lot of policymakers <laughs> around the world. So, yeah. um, so that was really just a period uh, when I just actually finished my PhD on, on feed and tariffs, that there was quite a lot of demand on feed and tariff design. And I was... I was um, really happy to assist them with that. But nowadays, you see um, most of the countries, except for a few countries in Asia, actually, like China is still using feed and Vietnam, um, we Vietnam calculating feed and tariffs. Um, mm-hmm. So in other words, feed and tariffs for small-scale projects, that's still a thing? Oh, yeah. No, that's, that's still a big thing. That's the only way. Well, it's not the only, only way, do it. way <laughs> but it's, it's, it's um, when, you, when you look beyond self-consumption and net metering programs, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You definitely need to feed and turf. Anything that you would like to add before we uh, sign off here? No, my main message is I, I think that we are, we have talked too much about um, about support mechanisms and people who are befriended with feed and turf and people who are befriended with auctions or quota based mechanisms. And I'm I'm really tired of this discussion. So I always try to base the discussion ba- um, back to policy objectives. And mm-hmm. if if you if you are a country uh, once again like Saudi Arabia who's primarily interested in low cost renewables and large scale projects, then I would definitely tell you go for an auction. But yeah. if you are a country like Germany, where all of the politicians always say, yeah, burger energy, citizens, community energy is is a really important thing then you also have to design a support framework which reflects this. Community energy was big in Denmark, was big in Germany. It's kind of died in both places in new projects. Uh, Does that matter? I think it will matter. Um, It already matters um, because we already see quite a lot of um, losses in acceptance, especially when it comes to onshore wind energy in, in northern Germany. I'm not sure. I think it's similar cases as well in Denmark. So if you want to get to the deployment levels um, that we actually need for combating climate change. Um, you won't be able to do this without any significant engagement financially and also in the planning processes from the local communities. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about having um, annual capacity additions of five gigawatt of onshore wind energy in Germany um, and not, not something like 1.5 that we see today, we definitely need a mechanism which allows local communities to plan the project, to finance the project, and, and to get it done um, 
let it be with a feed-in tariff or with um, some prices which are based on auctions and then translated into a feed-in tariff. But I don't think you will you will get to the necessary deployment levels with the current policy framework. Okay. Yeah. Well, David, this was... And that's also yeah. maybe uh, just one addition, because um, we, we should also talk about what we need at the global scale. And um, we have seen quite an increase of renewable energy deployment in the last couple of years. But when you look at the calculations from Irina, when we look at what we would really need to to meet our Paris Agreement targets, um, we would need a six-fold increase of renewable energy deployment. And this also, I'm not sure we will be able to manage um, with capped auctions, with annually capped um, procurement programs, because you, you would need in the next 15, 20, 25 years, you would need to have so much deployment um, going on that you probably won't be, do it, won't be able to do it with controlled growth rates as you see it on the, on the auctions mechanisms. And mm-hmm. this is a discussion I haven't seen so far at international level. Um, that we should really also discuss. In other the, words, we're not auctioning enough. Well, and the question is, would would an auction still work if you um, if made it you six cost, times bigger? Yeah, if you make it six times bigger, because an auction only works if you have more supply than demand. And if all of a sudden you're increasing your demand from, let's say, one gigawatt per year to six gigawatt per year. Um, you might not have the necessary projects which are already in the pipeline, and therefore your auctions no longer work because the price setting no longer. So if you really look at the targets that we would need to meet the Paris Agreement, I don't think auctions will work in a lot of countries still, because you would always see then proposals which are very uh, much linked uh, to the maximum price that you're offering, and then you can just as well better uh, offer a feed-in tariff, and that probably get much more deployment uh, within a shorter period of time. Here's a thought. You could fix everything by increasing the auction volume several fold. Everyone who could build at the maximum price might then do so, including communities. Yes, uh, it would just factually be indistinguishable from feed-in tariffs, so the purpose of switching to auctions would be nullified. But we would mitigate climate change faster. To have robust auctions or slow down climate change... Anyway, I'm glad you two put this into the larger context. What do we actually want? Is our policy goal community energy? Then we also need policies that bring about community energy. And why can't we have both? Feed in tariffs for small projects and at the same time auctions for big ones. To answer this question, we contacted Ander Gallagher. He works at Ireland's Department of Communications, Climate Action and Environment. He currently has responsibility for the development of community energy policy within the Irish Renewable Electricity Support Scheme. This year, he has been negotiating a carve-out for community renewables with DG Competition in Brussels. So now, let's hear from Ender Gallagher. Ireland proposed a carve-out for community renewables in 2019. Uh, What does that look like? Yes, so we have a broader uh, support scheme called the Renewable Electricity Support Scheme for which we have sought um, 
state aid sign off from Brussels. But within that uh, overall auction or overall auction framework, we decided that it wasn't really appropriate to expect uh, communities to enter competitive auctions against um, experienced and big uh, commercial developers uh, with many years experience. And I suppose in particular, given you look at the community energy landscape in Ireland, there is only one community electricity generation project in the whole country. Uh, and that's that one project has has been supported or is being supported under previous uh, support schemes. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was the only project that came through those schemes. So we felt that even uh, in schemes where it was a straightforward uh, uh, price scenario, we still couldn't encourage communities to enter um, the electricity generation arena. Mm -hmm. So how on earth could we expect them to uh, enter the arena if they had to uh, actually compete in competitive auctions? Okay. So we've decided um, that we have sought a separate community category within the overall support scheme. Mm -hmm. And what does that look like? Yeah, so we have proposed that uh, for the first auction under the new support scheme framework, that there will be a 1% capacity carve out for community projects. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we have defined community projects. There are a range of characteristics, uh, but essentially the key characteristics are that the projects will be small, so no more than five megawatts in size, Mm -hmm. that there will uh, be uh, a minimum of 51% community ownership of the project. Mm-hmm. So that therefore allows for small developers of small projects to uh, combine with local communities on a 49 to 51% split mm-hmm. um, to deliver a project. That's obviously useful for inexperienced communities uh, who may not be in a position to, at this point, uh, deliver their own project. Mm-hmm. So they may well be happy to partner with a, um, a small developer, mm-hmm. but on a majority scale. Mm-hmm. And there are some other requirements as well, in particular, um, one that is an important one for ensuring that the category is not gamed by professional developers. Mm -hmm. And that is to ensure that there is what's called a sustainable energy community Mm -hmm. as part of the um, consortium proposing the project. A sustainable energy community is a formally designated uh, entity under our energy authorities, um, uh, one of our energy authorities scheme. So our energy authority is the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, Mm -hmm. and they have a scheme where they register sustainable energy communities. Um, And that would be a situation where communities have put their hand up to say we're interested in energy and we want to create energy projects and we have set about creating an entity to deliver those. Those three key characteristics we're hoping will ensure that genuine community projects uh, come through that category. How do you define who's a member of a community? Is it residency within a district or is it kilometers from the project? Yes, we haven't put an actual designation on that. We have talked uh, in general terms about in the locality of a project. We are conscious that uh, projects will necessarily differ in terms of their geography. There will be some projects in extreme rural areas 
where there would not be many people at all living in the immediate, let's say, three kilometer vicinity, Mm -hmm. whereas other areas would have significant numbers of people that would live in that sort of a designation. So we are giving freedom to some extent to uh, the projects and their localities uh, and their promoters to actually work out what would be appropriate. You've taken this to Brussels and how did they react? Yeah, I mean, uh, DG Competition uh, in Brussels are obviously concerned with uh, the existing state aid rules that apply across Europe. And they have a job to do to ensure that government is not subsidizing uh, business in an inappropriate way. So they look at everything, particularly through the prism of competition and ensuring that competitive outcomes from support schemes such as this now derive. So obviously, I suppose they looked at the suggestion of a separate community category with some skepticism because they are concerned that that in itself, the idea of having such a category may not be competitive. Uh, in the overall framework. Mm -hmm. And I suppose we, you know, can completely see um, that that is one way of viewing this. However, what we have done is presented to them a much more holistic business case for the need for this community category. And within that, we have looked at um, things like ensuring that the category is quite small, Uh, that the competitiveness will maintain within the category. So it is an option. It's just a separate auction Mm -hmm. category. We've looked at the importance of delivering community energy uh, vis-a-vis adhering to the wider DG energy and EU energy legislation through the clean energy package, which calls for the delivery of community energy and the removal of barriers associated. So we've put a lot of effort into presenting the importance of this wider holistic view uh, to the auction framework. Okay, and we're recording at the end of March. Uh, so what, are the, what is the status of those negotiations? It's a very extensive process, the whole state aid um, process. So we're still involved in that process in terms of questions and answers being presented to Brussels. We expect a final decision from Brussels on this in May. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose uh, until such time as that's delivered, we can't be sure that the category will be approved. However, we feel that we have presented very solid case and uh, have answered all of their questions very clearly um, and comprehensively. And in addition, we have engaged with them around the possibility of monitoring such a category and ensuring that um, there is an evaluation of the success of the category in auction one, for instance, uh, mm. and learnings then deriving uh, onwards into the second and third auctions and so on. So there will be very clear monitoring and evaluation of this proposal going forward. Okay, great. Anything else you want to add? Well, I think uh, in an Irish context, the delivery of community energy is behind many other member states uh, in Europe. So I think it is uh, critical that Ireland can uh, maintain its approach and can be successful in delivering this uh, separate category in the auctions. And I think if we can do so and get some uh, projects through the first auction, then I think there will be um, a flourishing community energy sector realizing in Ireland in the next decade. I love this quote. How on earth can we expect community energy to enter the arena if they have to compete in competitive auctions? It's an insight apparently not every policymaker has reached yet. 
But community renewables is the official goal of EU policy. So policy must be designed to reach that goal, not prevent it. And he speaks of a sustainable energy community. That's a thing under the Energy Authority of Ireland scheme. Seems so. So Ireland has already defined what constitutes a community renewable project. That's brilliant. But yet they also have the flexibility to adapt to local conditions. So if a family lives a few hundred meters further away from a project, you can just change the distance limit to include them. That's even more brilliant. Okay, but it's only for 1%. Remember what Dirk van Sintjan said about community renewables in Belgium? We can do 50%. Anders said a decision is expected in May. Do you have any news on this? Yeah, so my colleagues on the ground in Ireland uh, tell me that the decision has been postponed until the summer. Uh, I don't know, maybe, I guess Brussels probably, like everybody, has more pressing things to do with corona going on and stuff. But, but, but Ireland is actually going ahead uh, with some of these community projects. So that's what we know sort of at the end of June. All right, just to get this right. Red 2, the EU's renewable energy directive of 2018, calls for more community renewables. Why is DG Competition investigating an Irish support scheme to reach a goal the EU has set? Because Red 2 doesn't say how to promote community renewables. It mainly says we shouldn't discriminate against it. And DG Competition then investigates whether we are discriminating against non-community projects when we promote community ones, even just 1% of the time. We really need to understand that DG Competition is a kind of super DG, maybe not on paper, but in fact. And there are good reasons for this. The EU began as a peace project, and the first goal was to get French and German industry cross-invested in each other so that when the next war came, they would be against it because their assets would be bombed in either country. So the whole EU develops around this idea of non-discriminatory trade. We now have other DGs, of course, but DG Comp remains central in many ways because of this history. Rebecca, what are your main takeaways from this episode? First, using feed-in tariffs to create community renewables is like pushing a string. The policy does not lead to community projects always. The community groups have to be ready and waiting, or bigger professional developers will move faster and fill up the market. And second, auctions are good at limiting growth, they are good at increasing market concentration, and good at preventing community renewables. We see this everywhere. So we need something else if we want community projects. You've been listening to the Community Renewables Podcast, produced by Germany's Renewable Energy Agency. The AEE. For the local community renewables project, LECO. 
The project is funded by the European Union's Northern Periphery and Arctic Program 2014-2020, which is supported by the European Regional Development Fund. We would also like to thank the German Community Energy Alliance, BBEN, and the Heinrich Böll Foundation for their special support. I'm your host, Rebecca Freitag. Freitag for future! And our producer is energy transition chronicler Craig Morris, advisor at the AEE. The overdubbing of the interviews in German was spoken by Pascal Morris. The music throughout this podcast is from the best Irish folk band ever from Japan, Tricolor. Check the show notes for links to their music. Art is what makes us human. So support your local artists after all this corona business is over. Okay, today Re Rebecca and I have decided in this international episode to each tell a country joke. So we'll start off with Germany. Rebecca, you ready for Germany? I'm so ready. <laughs> okay, so these are light bulb jokes, everybody. You probably, you probably know the format. So how many Germans does it take, Rebecca, Actually, not does it take Rebecca, but how many Germans does it take to change a light bulb? Tell me. Just one, because the Germans are efficient and have no sense of humor. I don't get that. Yeah, I think you've just proven our point that the Germans have no sense of humor. Yeah, okay. All right. Okay, now I will do an American joke. Okay. How many Americans does it take to change a light bulb? I'm not sure I want to know. Just kidding. You can't change anything in the United States. <laughs> oh, no. That one hurts. That's not even funny. Oh, man. Bad, bad year for that joke. Bad year for that joke. All right. So see you again next week, everybody. See you next week. All right. Bye-bye.